2: What happens when a family member betrays us and we shut them out of our lives for years? Is it possible to let them back into our hearts? Today's guest, Laura Davis, joins us to share the story of her relationship with the mother who betrayed her. She teaches how healing between family members who have felt wrong by one another is not only possible, but can be the greatest joy of both their lives. Laura's books include The Courage to Heal and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again. Her new book is The Burning Light of Two Stars. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Jen. So, Laura, to begin, would you start off by telling us a little bit about what happened to you in your life that put you on this journey of healing?
3: Well, The Burning Light of Two Stars tells the story of my embattled relationship with my mother, our determination to love one another, and the dramatic and very surprising collision course we ended up on at the end of her life. When I was in my 20s, my mother and I experienced a terrible rift and we spent the next 20 years struggling to find our way back to each other and back then i would have said we had reconciled but then my mother grew older and she called one day when she was almost 80 um, to announce that she was moving across the country to live in my town for the rest of her life and suddenly we no longer had a three thousand mile buffer between us and at the same time my mother began losing her mind to dementia And her decline triggered every button I had. I mean, how could it not? She'd made those buttons. And becoming her caregiver brought up all the issues that had never been resolved between us. And yet, I had made this promise to care for her for the rest of her life. So the story I I told is the story of what happened next. Could I find it in my heart to love her unconditionally? And despite everything that had happened in our history... Was I actually capable of becoming the daughter she needed me to be?
2: What you just described happens to so many of us in one degree or another. And, you know, sometimes these rifts take place because of something extremely traumatic and something that many would view as unforgivable. And sometimes these different types of arguments and and disagreements are over really silly things that we allow to consume our lives. And, and, you know, I actually experienced something like this with some family members where they just stopped talking to me or other people. And and often you don't even know why. So when these types of things happen, do you believe that we're able to push those emotions aside or or even, you know, deal with them so that we can move forward together as a family?
3: You know, it just depends. There's not one answer for everyone. And, you know, you're absolutely right that um, for millions of people who are facing this kind of dilemma, it's not necessarily a huge betrayal, but it can be a small hurt that then gets amplified or held onto, and people don't have the skills to let go of something and move forward. Um, and sometimes it's a habitual pattern that just, it's like something is the last straw. And I think, you know, in order to reconcile, both people have to want it to happen, um, You know, one person on their own can definitely reach more peace inside themselves, and they can shift their own behavior, and that will change the dynamic in the relationship. But in order for the relationship itself to change, um, there has to be a shift on both parts. I think one of the, the things that my mother and I had going for us, even though there was this huge betrayal in our past, is we both wanted to have a relationship with each other. Even when we were at our absolute lowest point, and we were the most bitterly estranged. I still, you know, I thought about her every day, and I could hear her voice in my head. And although I wouldn't have admitted it at the time, I really longed to make peace with her. So it, it really depends on the, um, the individuals involved, but I think there are, are many pathways towards uh, reconciliation. And it doesn't always look like, you know, a hallmark card in the end. Um, sometimes, you know, the best we can achieve may be coming to some kind of agreement, for instance, so that we have certain rules of engagement so the family members can all attend a wedding together, you know, or they could all be at some other family event that matters. And it might be something like, you know, um, a daughter might say, you know, I'm coming to the wedding, but I'm not posing for any family pictures or I'm not sitting at a table with dad, but I'll come you know, or it might be certain terms that make it possible for grandparents to see their grandchildren. Um, And and this is in a situation where there has been some kind of betrayal, uh, and there's a a lack of safety. But sometimes it's just stubbornness. And uh, whether someone is willing to relinquish that, you know, it has a lot to do with how flexible are we as human beings? You know, have we developed some resilience, um, where we have learned the skills to make peace over things that uh, get between people you know can we resolve a fight uh, some people can some people find it very very challenging to do that
2: the people who are the most stubborn or find it the most challenging often have the the idea that forgiveness means that you're excusing or accepting bad behavior but really forgiveness is more for you and it's it's like you're describing it's finding that peace within yourself so that you can move forward, and just because you reestablish a relationship with someone who hurt you, it doesn't mean you forgot that pain. But you're figuring out a way to move forward with that person in some type of peace.
3: I think you know the the, the biggest problem with forgiveness is how much it's pushed on people, um, sometimes prematurely. You know, um, you know, in my family there was um, had been sexual abuse, which is a very severe betrayal, and before i even had a chance to do my own healing process about this this was decades ago you know the people in my family were like urging me to forgive um, and to move beyond it and to let it go what happened in the past but i think in order to forgive you have to have really healed from the pain of whatever the betrayal or the hurt was Um, and and that puts you in a more um, magnanimous state where you can have more compassion for everyone involved and achieve a state of forgiveness. But for me, I would say that forgiveness is not the first step. Sometimes it's at the end of a long process of healing and coming to peace yourself. And then for me anyway, it was a something that rose up inside me almost like a gift, but it wasn't something I, I tried to make happen. Um, And it felt wonderful to forgive in my family. But it came after a lot of other stages, which included um, naming a violation that had occurred, um, talking about what had happened, breaking silence, grieving for what I had lost. Until I did all of those stages, I wasn't ready to forgive.
2: Do you find now that after having a, a walled heart, a protected heart, are you able to open it again now? Well, you know, that's that question of,
3: When you have good reason to close your heart, can you open it again? That's that's the journey that I really wrote about in my book is, is, is it possible to do that when you've been hurt very badly? And, you know, for me, the answer was yes, but it was a lot of work. It took many years. It's not, you can't like legislate your heart to open. One of the things that happened between my mother and I, and this was to my mother's credit, and I think it made a huge difference, is that I had moved pretty much as far away from her as I could get without crossing an ocean. So I grew up in New Jersey. I ended up in California. So we were living 3,000 miles away. And we had a very difficult history between us with a lot of bitterness and anger and judgments. And at one point, my mother said to me, she said, you know, if we don't do something about the geographical distance between us, we will never reconcile because if we only see each other you know, once a year, and those visits usually uh, would end up in a big fight with a lot of conflict. She said, if we only see each other once a year, all we're going to have is like 20 years of a difficult past. And so she decided, and I was not really supportive at first, but she started coming out to California for a couple of months every winter. And this was instigated by my first child who was born when I was 36 years old. And I think she really wanted to be a grandmother to him. And I actually really wanted her to be his grandmother, I think, more than anything. And I think this is a pretty common story. Um, grandchildren for us was a real motivator for both of us to work harder at our reconciliation. And so she started coming in the winter. She would rent her own little apartment. And my mother was a very social person. She would get engaged in a lot of activities and she would leave the bitter New Jersey winters and she would come out to California and You know, at first, I didn't really welcome her. I mean, I didn't lift a finger to help her. I didn't help her find a place to live. I was very ambivalent. Um, But she came, and what we started to do is we agreed to disagree about the biggest hot-button issue between us that was really never going to be resolved. And we started to focus on some of the things that we had in common. For instance, my mother and I both loved the movies. And she was an actor, and we both loved going to the theater and, of course, we both love spending time with my son, um, her grandson. And so we started, and we liked to cook together. So we would, we would get together for a holiday, and we would spend the day in the kitchen. And we started reinforcing the things that actually worked between us. And we stopped trying to convince each other that one was right and the other was wrong. And it took many years, I would say about nine years of these visits, things gradually started to change. At first there still were so many triggers, you know, she would make one comment and I would, you know, withdraw. I would make one wrong comment and she would explode and then we would retreat into our corners. But as time went on, there started to be more trust between us. And I remember this one time about 9 years into this process of her coming for these two-month visits in my town, we had a fight, and the next day I went over to visit her, um, and we always played cards. That was something we had in common. We loved playing 500 Remy, and we, I just dealt out a hand of cards, and I realized that we had reached a point where it's not that we wouldn't fight, but that we could fight, and that the fact that we could have a fight and it wouldn't risk our entire relationship, to me, was the moment I realized that we really had reconciled.
2: Well, and that's when you know you have a a real relationship, when you can have disagreements and still be part of the relationship. And what I love about everything you just described to us, and and there were so many wonderful points that you made, you know, that you both decided the relationship was worth it, that rather than focusing on the, the heated issue, which is what most of us do in trying to maintain a relationship, we stick with the big issue. But you did the opposite of what we usually do. You found the common ground and the things that, that you were able to work on, the, the little things that really are big, but those little things that were able to build and reinforce and help you grow that relationship. And, and I think that you just made so many wonderful points in this discussion.
3: Yeah, I remember this one time um, my mother had rented a place that didn't have a washer and dryer. And so I invited her to bring her laundry over. And so she dropped off her laundry one day, and I remember I was, you know, I was working in my office, I was writing, and I was doing her laundry. And I went in the house and I just lifted these wet sheets and shirts and pants from the washer and put them in the dryer, um, and then I was folding them later. And I, as I did it, I just started to think about. All the clothes she had washed for me, you know, and all the little the little onesies and the little the clothes she had sewn for me when I was a little girl and and all and it was such a tender moment of just such a simple little activity, and it was private. you know, it wasn't something I did with her. It was just by myself folding clothes, feeling this kind of generational tie, and I, I started weeping. You know, and I, I never told anyone about that, but it was one of those moments where just something the rift healed a little bit from a very, very simple activity., you know, I'm thinking about a story about a, a woman I interviewed once, and she had had a, a very severe rift in her family because of alcoholism and abuse, and I mean, really extreme. And she was the only person in the family. I think there were six siblings who spoke out about it. And she was basically cast out and no one would speak to her and she moved far away. And she, you know, spent the next 20 or 30 years basically healing and establishing her own life separate from her family. And then she got to a certain age and she started thinking about her mother. Her mother was getting quite elderly and she really wanted to connect with her. And her mother was, loved the Bible. And there was a particular Bible verse that she really liked. And everyone in that family was very handy, and they either sewed or did needlework or cruel or crocheting. And this woman um, did needlework, and she got a sampler that had that psalm that her mother loved. And she said every day for six months, she would sit down in the evening, and she would stitch that sampler. And she said she really, with every stitch, she just put love into that sampler, and she finished it, and then she nailed it off to her mother as a gift. And that year she got invited for the first time in decades to Christmas. She went to Christmas, um, and there was that sampler framed on the wall at a very prominent place. And I just was, um, I was so touched by that story of, you know, we don't really know what it's going to be, but it was her intention. And I believe that love that she sewed into that sampler really made a difference. It it demonstrated her love. It wasn't with words. Sometimes when we're in these situations, words fail us, you know, because we get into the same rut. It's like a a groove in a record and we just can't get out of it. We have our position. They have their position. And we set these rules like, unless you do X, I'm not speaking to you. And sometimes it, it really, there's like an inside job first and it enables unexpected reconciliations to occur. And that was one.
2: Laura, what do you say to someone who is in a situation where they're having a disagreement with a family member or even a friend and the other person is not at all receptive to working on the relationship and you really love and care about this person? What do you say to someone to help them accept that the relationship may never heal?
3: We don't get to control other people. You know, we, we really don't. But we can control ourselves. And by that, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, with my mother, one of the things I had to do is I had I had this kind of habitual pattern of focusing on her negative qualities, you know, like any mistake she ever made from tiny little trespasses to the hugest betrayal. In my mind, they were set in stone. And I would repeat those stories over and over and over for decades so that I I presented my mother really as an ogre, which she wasn't. I mean, she had some failings. She also had some wonderful qualities, but I fixated on the negative. Um, and and my, my spouse actually pointed it out to me one day, you know, that, that I was doing that and confronted me about it. And I started really a conscious effort to focus on her positive traits, to focus on the good, and to be able to see her not just as my mother and kind of my foil but, it, you know, as I got older and I think more mature, I was able to almost get a more like global view. I looked at all the forces that had shaped her. I looked at, you know, I come from a, a Jewish family and there was a lot of trauma that had been passed down through the generation. So I looked at, you know, the epigenetics of this trauma that had come through the family line and through the women uh, in the family line. And I thought about you know, how she had been raised and what she had dealt with and the era in which she grew up. And suddenly her story of what shaped her and what, what brought about her values and her limitations and also her strength from a much bigger vantage point than just my mother versus me. Um, so I think that, that kind of work of healing the relationship is an inside job and is not reliant on the other person's willingness. And, you know, I think ultimately there are definitely, you know, reconciliation can be possible in really unexpected situations like mine with my mother, but there are also many situations where it actually an actual reconciliation directly with the other person is impossible or not just impossible, but uh, inadvisable, you know, maybe having a relationship with that person means that you're continually going to be, you know, emotionally abused, or you're continually going to be betrayed, or you're continually going to be hurt and not able to establish um, yourself. So sometimes it's important to have boundaries with someone, and there are certain people it's really better not to reconcile with. And in those cases, there was one woman who was in that kind of situation, and she did a lot of spiritual work inside herself. Um, And I think she really did come to a place of forgiveness Ultimately, and the way she put it, she said, you know, with my parents, she said, I had to close the door, but I left the porch light on. And I I just thought that was very beautiful, you know, that it, it was really on a on an inside level. She had compassion. She was able to get to a place of caring and compassion for them, even though she believed. And I think rightly so in her situation that a direct relationship was not possible. Um, you know, these people had abused her, they had abused her children, uh, they were not changing. Um, but she was able to get to that point, and it gave her peace. And I think, you know, the the fourth type of reconciliation, it's, it's not always, you know, the violins playing and the wonderful connection. Sometimes it's what we could do on the inside to reach that place of compassion and that place of peace. And, you know, the opposite of estrangement Um, is not reconciliation, it's peace. So that's really what we want. We want to find that place of peace with the relationship at whatever level it ends up.
2: The book is The Burning Light of Two Stars. If you would like to get more information about Laura and her work, you can visit lauradavis.net Laura, in about 30 seconds or less, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with?
3: I'd like to tell them that you never know what the ultimate outcome will be and that there are surprises in life if we are open to them um, and that, you know, having an open heart and doing the work to open heart after an injury is absolutely worth it. Um, I'd also like to tell people that I I posted the um, first five chapters of the book on my website and I invite them to go read it um, because people have contacted me um, and they say things like, you know, I'm going to have to take care of my mother and I've been dreading it. And now I'm thinking about it as an opportunity.
2: Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
3: Thank you, everybody.
2: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
1: Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
2: It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today is Emanuela Visoni, a certified health and life coach who has helped people experience breakthroughs in their health and lives. She is the author of the book, Healing Through Nature's Medicine. Emanuela is here today to discuss inflammation. Welcome, Emanuela. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: Thank you so much for having me, John.
2: So Emanuela, as many of us are learning more and more, it's that inflammation is really an enemy of our body. What are a few of the most common symptoms of inflammation of the body?
4: Okay, so a lot of people may experience heat, redness, swelling, pain. This is the start of inflammation. So they can also experience body aches and pains, congestion, irregular elimination, indigestion, skin breakout, uh, frequent infections, advanced aging, arthritis weight gain and also weight loss resistance.
2: So Emanuela, how can we reduce or even eliminate inflammation if we're not even aware that we have it?
4: So diet has the power to either turn up the the heat or put out fires in our body. So foods can either be a pro-inflammatory or foods can actually be an anti-inflammatory and suppress that entire response. So the coolest part of this is to make a vote, and you have to be the one to make that vote. What do you want to put into your body? So sugar causes a rise in blood sugar. A rise in blood sugar releases the bomb, okay, which is inflammation, resulting in a burst of inflammatory chemicals that spread throughout the cells in your body like wildfire. There are many of these inflammatory chemicals Including ones you might have um, heard about, like histamines, um, kinins, and um, interleukins. So these chemicals cause inflammatory fallout, a cascade of internal responses that require your immune your immune system to try to do to go do some nonstop wildflower cleanup. Um, they bonk you over the head on a psychological level as well, locking you in a yo-yo pattern of de- deprivation and indulgence that you just can't seem to break, doing damage to your, your poor psyche and yourselves.
2: So, Emanuela, I've heard some doctors say that sugar is as addictive as cocaine or, or drugs like that. So how do we break this addiction?
4: So, and and isn't that crazy that that is um, something that it is, you know, compared to. So, are you addicted to sugar? That's the question. There are many reasons for sugar cravings. One One of them is the response to your body's inability to regulate blood glucose level without the high sugar consumption. The blood, the body's always looking for homeostasis or balance. The inability to regulate the body has long-term health risks and cravings are a sign that you're out of balance. Addressing your physiological ties to sugar, you not only find peace of mind in your ability to end your addictive relationship with your snack attacks, But you also find the peace of mind that you're putting your body's fire department to work. So quelling the inflammation that can lead to increased risk of disease and accelerated aging. And I know a lot of us women want to fight the aging process. So that is definitely one way to do it. And also, you know, recognize your cravings. Know that sugar cravings can be conquered. It may take time and awareness, but it can be done. And um, here are some healthy suggestions for satisfying your sweet tooth and kicking your sugar habit. So um, the top 10 tips that I would give to, to conquer your sugar habits or your cravings would be, number one, avoid um, artificial sugars. These, number one, are toxic. They increase your appetite and your sugar cravings. So, And they also, artificial sweeteners, also inhibit fat metabolism. Number two is don't buy junk food. Keep it out of your home. Having junk food in your home actually inspires you to to do those little late-night binges. Number three, eat more fruits and sweet veggies. Try reaching for these instead and they'll actually quell your craving. And number four is exercise. Movement helps the body to metabolize glucose, and um, this is definitely going to help you with that as well. Number five, uh, separate emotion from eating your food. Take Take notice of our culture's obsession with sugar and reward and holidays. So find other options. Number six would be crowd out. Going cold turkey from all sweets may lead to feelings of failure and disappointment. And also number seven would be read your the ingredients of what you're buying. Look for look at the ingredients of every package you buy as opposed to the grams of sugar. Notice where the sugar is sneaking in and start to find better options. Number eight, remember that we're not ta- we're not talking about calories here. This may sound crude, but a little bit of crack is is still crack, am I right? So when you're kicking the sugar habit, rely on healthy alternatives, not modifying amounts of the same old stuff. The body will quickly remember old habits. Small amounts will trigger return cravings and binges. Number nine is eat good fats like nuts and coconut oil. Good fats will help to modulate cravings and stabilize blood sugar. And tip number 10 is seek out help and support if you do need that extra additional accountability and someone to be your cheerleader to cheer you on when you're doing a great job.
2: Emanuela, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or about Emanuela and her work, you can visit embodyvitality.net. And as always, to hear more from Emanuela, you can visit our website, cya.com slash Emanuela. We'll be right back.
0: At highway speeds, the average text takes your eyes off the road for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Stop texts, stoprex.org Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This is <laughs> WNWA. New Jersey, New York City.
2: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. According to the American Heart Association, one in ten individuals who experience sudden cardiac arrest outside the hospital will survive. SCA is the third leading cause of death in the United States, with 1,000 people experiencing it outside of a hospital setting. Our next guest, Steve Ryan, suffered cardiac arrest while golfing with his daughter, Caitlin. Caitlin immediately jumped into action and performed CPR, which ultimately saved her father's life. Welcome, Steve. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, Joan.
2: So, Steve, tell us what happened that day while you were golfing.
1: Well, I experienced a sudden cardiac arrest, which is uh, where the heart stops suddenly. Um, I'm one of the lucky one out of 10 that survived this. Um, I woke up in the hospital three days after the event, and the nurse was asking me if I knew why I was there. And I said, no, I don't have a clue why I'm here. And she said, you Experienced a sudden cardiac arrest on the golf course with your daughter, Caitlin, and she performed CPR and is a true hero. She saved your life. Uh, Caitlin learned CPR uh, in middle school and on a stuffed animal, no less, and was able to perform CPR on me successfully.
2: Steve, were you being treated for a heart condition when this happened, or did this just come out of the blue?
1: So I was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy um, about eight or nine years prior, and... um, So cardiomyopathy is just where, you know, you don't have as much of a a squeeze to get as much blood out of the heart with each pump. Um, Mine was pretty mild. So I was on some some medicines to help with that, to help it squeeze more efficiently. Um, But that's really the only thing that uh, that was kind of, you know, a cardiac issue-wise that could have led to this.
2: What are the common signs or symptoms? And were you experiencing anything that maybe you missed?
1: Um, so some of the common signs are dizziness, uh, fast heartbeat, and then obviously a loss of consciousness. I was uh, really fatigued, but I kind of chalked that up to doing a lot of yard work that day. It was pretty hot out, but um, but I don't recall the dizziness, but I'm you know, it may have happened. I just don't recall it happening. Um, a lot of people will have a Of a blackout period where they don't remember when they have a sudden cardiac arrest.
2: So these are things that any one of us could easily explain away. If any of our listeners are experiencing something that you just described, what should that person do?
1: So if you're experiencing those, uh, call 911. If you see someone who's lost consciousness or have these other symptoms, again, call 911 um, and they will determine if you need to start CPR. In the case of loss of consciousness, um, and if there's no heartbeat, I'm sure they'll have you start CPR. So, you know, really the key is to make sure that you act and um, and no CPR ahead of time. You just never know when you're going to need to use it.
2: What type of treatment did you receive after you had this episode?
1: Uh, so I spent nine days in the hospital and uh, a couple of days after they took me out of the medically induced coma, um, my cardiologist discussed having, he said, you know, I'd be a great candidate for an ICD which is an implanted defibrillator. And uh, so my wife and I discussed it and it really wasn't much of a discussion because it was like, yeah, I mean, this came out of the blue and you know, I'm lucky I'm here. So having a, a um, ICD basically gives you the peace of mind that if it were to happen again, this device will send an electrical impulse to the heart to keep it back, you know, get it back on a normal rhythm. So it's a small device. It's Battery operated. It's uh, installed right below your, your uh, clavicle, and it has a lead that runs into the heart. That just it's always continually monitoring your heart to uh, to make sure that it doesn't go into a bad rhythm. If it does, then it uh, it gives you that uh, electrical impulse to get you back.
2: Steve, we're living in some pretty crazy times. I mean, we are stressed out. We are anxious, and you know, all of those things can contribute to heart disease. Were you living a high risk life before this happened?
1: You no, know, I'm just uh, I'm just an average Joe that uh, you know I've got three kids and um, you no know, I you know I'm a software developer so I'm just an average guy, 49 years old, wife and kids and a dog.
2: So it's something that can really happen to any of us at any time.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's some some risk factors like my cardiomyopathy is a risk factor, but uh, you know all those risk factors are wide and varying. There's many different ones. So uh, there's really a lot of times no telling who's who it's going to happen to. Obviously, there's some things that could lead more to it. But um, yeah, to me, it was out of the blue for, for, for what um, what happened to me. I did not expect it whatsoever.
2: When you experience something like this, what has your life been like since? Do you enjoy things more? Or do you find that everything is more precious?
1: Absolutely. You know, I'm I'm on bonus time here, so um, you know every day is something special. You know, meeting people and talking to people is um, is just a joy, and uh, it's great watching the kids grow up. Um, you know, we uh, you know we kind of have a little bit new appreciation for everything, and really want to get the word out of so people are more aware of it and and uh, encourage people to learn CPR. Uh, Caitlin kind of combined her. Her love of golf and her uh, desire to get people to learn CPR, and she started a charity golf tournament, and uh, so we had that last uh, June, and we raised $31,000 for two great organizations, the American Heart Association and the Sudden Cardiac Arrest Foundation, Um, and they do a great job of educating people about uh, cardiac issues.
2: Once you go through something like that and you get to see how precious life really is, how do you keep yourself from living in fear that something may happen again? And and what do you say to our listeners who may have experienced a cardiac episode or something life-threatening? What do you say to them to keep them from living in fear as well?
1: Um, well, living in fear is kind of a choice. Um, I choose not to do that. Um, you know, I figure when it's my time, it's my time. And um, last April was not my time. So... Um, but now I actually have that i c d that's installed, so um if I were to go into a bad uh heart rhythm, that def- implanted defibrillator is gonna save my life so um anybody that's in the same situation that's had cardiac issues similar to mine, you know, discuss with your doctor as far as what's right for you for me, that option of the i c d was um, was was just perfect, so um you know I can't be in bubble wrap, and I can't have my wife following me around every place to uh To to make sure I'm okay. So, um, you know, this is just a great peace of mind having the ICD uh, there to protect me.
2: And Steve, where can our listeners go for more information?
1: Yeah, I would encourage everybody to go check out medtronic.com slash sudden cardiac arrest. There's a lot of good information about sudden cardiac arrest and other heart rhythm disorders and then treatments. So, um, yeah, if they go out there and check that out, that would be great. You know, additionally, if you could go out And uh, if you don't know CPR, go learn it. Um, It's a life-saving skill that most people say, I'll never have to use it. But uh, that's exactly what my daughter Caitlin said in middle school. And lo and behold, she had to use it.
2: Steve, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
2: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
5: you managing interruptions the phone rings calendar notifications pop up social media alerts text messages working from home and the doorbell rings working remotely and there's construction work down the street you get the point interruptions are everywhere how do you stay focused the art of getting work done and even more so getting your strategic work done is as simple as writing it down write out your plan for the day the week and month in advance follow your plan Look at your calendar periodically to keep you on target. If it is not in your plan, on your calendar, you do not have to respond to it at this time. Use your calendar as your guidepost. It gives you the direction you need throughout the day. You want to especially focus on what you want to do in the first half of your day. Know what your priorities are to achieve your daily objectives and stick to it. Align the work you do with the priorities you have set and write them out in your calendar. If you'd like to learn more about managing interruptions, the art of getting strategic work done, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website, star1professional.com. Did you know that smoking is a
6: leading cause of people being diagnosed with lung cancer? Isn't it time for you to quit smoking? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It is not easy for everyone to stop smoking cigarettes. If you are a smoker and want to quit, let these tips help you stop smoking. First, start reducing the amount of cigarettes you smoke each day until you have no more cigarettes left. Let that day be the start of you being a non-smoker for good. Second, change your habit and substitute a cigarette for a water bottle so you change the hand-to-mouth motion with something healthy. Number three, create a positive affirmation and repeat it a few times each day. For example, I am a non-smoker today and every day. Let good health and thinking about the money you will save as a non-smoker continue to motivate you. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at MetroHypnosisCenter.com.
7: If you have a parent in their 80s, there's a chance you are thinking about retiring and enjoying some leisure time or doing some traveling. You may have raised your children and paid the last of those college tuitions and are feeling more financially free. A sudden crisis with your 80-something-year-old parent can change all of that in a minute. Hi, I'm Lori Gardner, registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. I am the CEO and founder of HealthLink Advocates, a firm dedicated to assisting people navigate our very complex healthcare system. We also provide coaching to individuals and groups that want to improve their health and well-being. We see these situations all the time, and some people are prepared, but many are not. What do you need to do proactively to best navigate a health crisis or a change in the level of care your parent may need? First and foremost, know what your parents' medical conditions are what medications they take, and the possible side effects of those medications. Equally important is to know who all of their physicians are and what their contact information is. Remember, due to HIPAA laws, those physicians can't speak with you unless you are named as a contact person on that HIPAA form. In regards to legal matters, it is wise to have a power of attorney, a healthcare proxy document, and an advance directive. It can save a lot of heartache to have the conversation about what your parents' end of life wishes are ahead of time. You should also know what type of insurance plan they have. It is a wise idea to get yourself authorized to speak to those insurance companies on your loved one's behalf. Do not leave this elder journey to chance. If you need a nurse advocate and health coach to partner with you, please contact us at HealthLinkAdvocates.com.
2: you've put your heart and soul into writing a book you've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover so how do you reach your potential readers introducing the change your attitude change your life book club a resource guide created for books that change lives A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Fine Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that the answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom, and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Joan. Thank you. Eileen, you recently published a book, Reflections of a Fat Girl, Wisdom Lost and Found from Growing Up Overweight. Can you tell us a little bit about how this book came about? Yes, I can. And I have to say, I'm so
8: excited to be able to talk to you and to others about the book. Um, But I will tell you that even though I'm so excited about the book, um, it was my husband, actually, who said, Eileen, you have to put your writing into a book form. And when I was in private practice in upstate New York um, for nine years, uh, for seven of those years, I wrote a monthly article for... Jill Magazine, which was published by our local newspaper. And every month I had a column and every month I would write about women's issues, about anything and everything having to do with women, whether it was a national holiday, a political event, or um, something I might have seen on TV or read in the newspaper that would be of interest to women. And I wrote article after article after article. And my husband at some point said, Eileen, you have to put these into a book. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. And I don't think they belong in a book. And he said, Eileen, you have to do this. And then my marketing guru came along and basically said the same thing. So guess what? Now we have a book. So Eileen, what does
2: this title represent? What are the main themes that you teach? So the title
8: represents, I'll start with that one, Joan. Um, the title represents the fact that by the time I was uh, five years old, I was fat. I was a fat child. And I was an adolescent. And I was in a young adult and intimate adulthood, uh, swinging from um, uh, binge eating to uh, re- highly restrictive eating and I, my weight went back and forth and my emotional self went back and forth. And so the title represents the fact that uh, for so much of my life and even in moments now, the lens that I looked at the world through was from this fat girl perspective and all of the wounds and um, and the scarring, basically, that I uh, accumulated over the years because of the messages I received when I was a fat child, and beyond that. So the title is very, very representative of the lens, not only um, that I experienced the world through, but also that I wrote many or all of the articles from. And so what are the main themes that you teach? Um, The main themes in the book, well, what I did was I took all of the articles and, and I took them and I categorized them. And there is a chapter on body image. There is a chapter on innate body wisdom there is a chapter on uh, hunger and why we eat because many of us women know uh, that we don't simply eat because we're hungry. Um, Or if we're hungry, we might not be hungry for food. We might be hungry for something else, but we eat anyway. And um, another theme in the book is about self-love. So what do what do the articles teach what do I teach through the articles that basically we have to go within and learn about our own innate body wisdom we have to learn about what will work for us because what will work for me what has worked for me doesn't necessarily work for somebody else as that person might try to duplicate it that we all have to tweak whatever it is for example that i might say in the articles and say okay i'm going to try this out but if this doesn't work i can learn how to do this how to tweak it as long as i'm paying attention to my innate body wisdom and responding accordingly so we have to learn the language of our bodies and that's also a message in the book. So we learn the language our bodies speak. That's step one. And of course, step two is for us to respond accordingly.
2: Eileen, in about 30 seconds or less, if you could sum it up, what is the takeaway from what you teach?
8: Readers will take away my absolute love and respect for women and my hope and dream for more body positivity and body diversity depicted in mainstream media. We need more of that so that we can see ourselves when we look at TV or open up a magazine or a newspaper. And that's just not the case these days.
2: Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about the book or Eileen and her work, you can visit findbodyfreedom.com. Again, that's findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, you can hear more from Eileen by visiting our website, cyacyl.com Eileen. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done. And you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club.